Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Elhamdülillahi Rabbil Alemin. Ve sallallahu ve sellem ala seyyidina Muhammed ve ala alihi ve sahbihi ve sellem. Allahümme salli ala seyyidina Muhammed salatın tuncina biha min cemiyel ahvali vel afat ve takdilana biha cemiyel hacat ve tutahhiruna biha min cemiyel seyyat ve tarfa'una biha indeke ala derecat ve tubelliğuna biha aksan gayati min cemiyel khayrat fil hayati ve ba'del memat. Salatu ve selamu aleyk ya seyyidi ya Resulullah sallallahu aleyhi ve aleyhi ve sellem. Turn off my notifications over here. Because that's loud. Bismillah. So we are on number 155 from the Hikam or spiritual aphorisms of Sayyidina Shaykh ibn Atta'ala, secondary Rahimahullah Ta'ala, wa nafanallahu yahu bi ulumihi fi darin. Amin. Where he said, Satara and Waras Sarairi Bikatha ifil the Wahiri Ijlal and Laha and Tubtadala Bibujudil Idhar Wa Nunada Aleha Bilisan and Ishtihar. He has veiled the lights. Let me close this. He has veiled the lights of inward souls with the coarseness of outward appearances out of reverence for them lest they be made low and common by being divulged or being called on aloud by the tongue of fame. So, um, here we have this idea before, that came up before, that is coming up here as well, of the idea of uh, the human being and the person's bashariya versus their khususiyya. Their bashariya versus their khususiyya. So their bashariya is, as we spoke about before, their, um, let's say, their physical human reality. And their khususiyya is their spiritual reality. So the bashariya is related to their physical form, and the khususiyya is related to their spiritual form. The former being related to dirt and everything else that is in creation, really, uh, from the animals and so on. But the latter being related to the spirit or a ruh. And so there's a big difference between them. And um, the issue here is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala hides the that which is special about certain individuals under the guise of their normalcy under the guise of their normalcy and so satara anwa he has veiled the lights of inward souls with the coarseness of outward appearances out of reverence for them ijlal and to lest they be made low and common by being divulged so basically what this is is that these, you know, generally speaking, 
when something is very commonplace, it loses its importance, right? It loses its value. Um, it loses its worth. So he's saying is that this special secret that he has put in the hearts of some of his believers, he hides that, subhanahu wa ta'ala, behind certain things. And for the person who's unable to look beyond those superficialities, they will not be able to see the actual reality of what Allah has gifted these people with. And that's out of protecting it from being low and common by being divulged or being called aloud by the tongue of fame. So now this raises one of our major issues today. One of the major issues today, you know. Like you'll teach a text like this and people will say, you know, it's not interesting enough, it's not engaging enough, it doesn't um, doesn't make people want to be part of it, doesn't make people want to donate to the organization, whatever it might be, right? Different things that people will say. And um, quite frankly, like that's not really the point. Um, you could change these things. You could turn them into like really catchy phrases. And you see people do it. Like you see people pull something from... If you know the hikam, you see it. You could realize like, okay, they took that from there or they pulled this from there or whatever it might be. And they made it like really pretty and put some nice colors on it and paid for advertisements and whatever. And it reached so many people and now all these people are interested in it and whatever. But now it's kind of cheap. It doesn't... And, and, and no matter how... And the thing about these issues of spirituality is that you cannot do that with them because there is no, even if they become cheap, there's no cheap way of dealing with them because they're just fake then. And if they're fake, they're not, they're not what they're supposed to be, right? Like these are supposed to be realities that settle in the heart of the person. So it can become like, you know, People can call upon certain things. They can use certain like charisma. They can present material in a particular way. And, um, you know, that's, that's really whatever. But that doesn't take us to a reality that's deeper, right? And so part of Allah's hikmah, what he's getting at here, part of Allah's hikmah, part of Allah's wisdom in creation, is that these things that are truly actually really valuable, they're not always going to be palatable to the masses in that way. And that's not like an elitism. It's, it's to say that like if, if you are stuck on the superficialities, this is probably not going to be for you. You're just not gonna, it's just not going to be for you. Because that's not what this whole thing is about. And what's needed for someone to care about these kind of things in any sort of way that has longevity is probably just not going to work with with everyone now people might benefit from it and so on but it's uh they might get some ideas or they might get some concepts and that's fine you know but he's veiled this in a sense you know one time i don't know if i should say this hmm. I would say it's just we should push ourselves to look beyond certain things, you know. We live in a very superficial thing, 
Like if everything's not in the right way, if every sentence isn't perfect, if every expression isn't exactly right. Um, like we were studying something recently that was saying that part of kind of like the way that Islamic thought has developed has been that generally the earlier generations and oftentimes the people who had more and actually knew more spoke less. It's a little bit paradoxical, right? So like even amongst the Sahaba, for example, if we just take the Sahaba, like Abu Huraira was the highest narrator of hadith amongst the Sahaba, right? But he wasn't the most knowledgeable of the Sahaba. Like that's that's a bit tifa. I don't think there's any debate on that. That he wasn't the most knowledgeable of the Sahaba. He was not more knowledgeable than Sayyidina Abu Bakr, or Sayyidina Umar, or Sayyidina Uthman, or Sayyidina Ali, radiAllahu anhum ajma'in, and many others. He but he knew the hadith. This is not to take away from him, radiAllahu an. But it's just to say that you know things. Oftentimes, there's more to things than than what meets the eyes and sometimes we put our focus not in the right place like I was thinking about there was this um, advertisement for an imam position that was open that was going around and one of the one of the imams responded to it and basically said like this is this is horrible and this has no respect for specialization and so on and so forth he was really upset he's like this job description requires five or six people so I started thinking to myself like okay so what are the um, qualities that are needed for someone to be a, a successful imam in a larger masjid, let's say. If it's a really small community, you know, scale is really an issue here. So, like, if you have a thousand people at Jummah, it's very different than if you have a hundred people at Jummah, just in terms of what's going to be needed. But the person has to be a scholar, and they have to be an academic, and they have to be a community organizer, and they have to be a media spokesperson and they have to be a public speaker and they have to be a therapist and they have to be a mentor and they have to be um, what other thing I thought a youth group leader type thing there's like I was sitting I was just like okay let me think about it and there was like 10 different uh, things right and then I started thinking to myself like okay and which ones do the community put the most emphasis on like which ones are the ones that if you were to think about in the eyes of the community which ones are going to be the ones that like really will get you somewhere and I, I was like well in the end like if you're a good public speaker and you're a little bit charismatic that'll pretty much suffice you <laughs> regardless of like the scholarship the academics the therapy the count all of the other things that actually matter and are like the real issues of the day in and day out of what the person does as long as they can get up on Friday and say something that's pretty interesting and when they talk to people they can make people like them they'll pretty much be okay and we'll think that they're a qualified leader and so on and so forth it's just really amazing anyways point here is that sometimes we put our emphasis in the wrong place and these issues of spirituality and the issues of the heart and so on they're not a product to be sold or marketed and this is again one of I think our our biggest challenges our biggest biggest challenges and part of why it's such a big challenge is that this is also like we live in the water that's around us right 
and the general rank and file of the community this is like I've had many many times people in the community tell me you know um, you should charge for office hours you should uh, charge for this you should charge for that you should charge for this charge for that. I'm like yeah but like what is it then I mean great it you know we could do that probably but it would change everything wouldn't it I mean is that is that what we want is is that like as a people as a community is that what we want we want these things that's never what it was you know just so we're clear like that's um that's that wasn't what it was maybe if someone's like a private tutor to a wealthy family or something but otherwise the positions of religious leadership quote unquote or service were positions that were endowed it's not necessarily that they're given like huge quantities of money but they're stable so do we want to turn like our religion into a business too and make it run by the dictates of of the market and the dictates of social media marketing and advertisements and so on and like if we do what will that what what will happen to that you know like sometimes i see these advertisements on facebook about sufis or sufism or something and i'm like it's a facebook <laughs> advertisement <laughs> like there's something like there's something horribly wrong about that <laughs> like how am i getting a facebook ad about sufism like that doesn't there's there's something that's not making sense here anyways enough of this tangent he has veiled the lights of inward souls with the coarseness of outward appearances out of reverence for them lest they be made low in common by being divulged or be called on aloud by the tongue of fame that is not what these sara'ir are supposed to be the lights the anwar sara'ir the veiled lights of the inward souls that's not what they're meant to be for if 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 and if they're showing up in that way it's possible that they're not anwar sara'ir they might be other things you know, like they say that some people have a fatah rabbani or rahmani and some people have a fatah dhulmani. That some people have a spiritual opening and some people have an evil opening. It's not necessarily just because they were like given things doesn't mean that they were good things. They, they could be things that are used for bad. May Allah protect us all. Okay, I'm clicking the thing too much. There we go. سبحان من لم يجعل الدليل على أوليائه إلا من حيث الدليل عليه ولم يوصل إليهم إلا من أراد أن يوصله إليه. Glory be to him who does not guide to his friends, his awliya, except whom he wills. And he does not make anyone reach his friends except he whom he wishes to make reach him. Okay, so this is an important one also. This is a very important one. MashaAllah, Abdullah and Hanan, very good to see you. Asnawi, good to see you too. I was actually meaning to message you today. I hope you're doing well. MashaAllah. Um, Glory be to him who does not guide to his friends except whom he wills, and he does not make anyone reach his friends except he whom he wishes to make reach him. <coughs> and the commentary, Shaykh Abdul Majid al-Shurnubi, Allah yurhamu, he says, فَإِذَا أَحَبَّكَ اللَّهُ أَرَادَ أَنْ يُعَرِّفَكَ بِوَلِيًّا مِنْ أَوْلِيَائِهِ طَوَى عَنْكَ 
وأراد أن يعرفك بولي من أوليائه طوى عنك وجود بشريته وأشارك وجود خصوصيته فإنه لم يصل إليهم إلا من أراد أن يصله إليه لأنهم أحبابه فلا يحب أن يجمع عليهم إلا من جمع قلبه عليه I believe that was correct. So he says that if Allah wa- wa- wishes or uh, loves you, this is the translation, not trying to make it about you and me. This is the translation. If he loves you and he wants to acquaint you with a wali from his awliya, a friend, a saint, the translations elude us. And the word for wali and awliya But the the awliya are an extremely important concept in our belief You know Like in Al-Aqidah Tahawiyya The famous Aqidah of Imam Tahawi He says that to believe in the miracles of the saints To mean to believe in karamat al-awliya Is an issue of belief Like this is an issue of foundational creed for us it's agreed upon it's not an issue of debate who is an actual wali and who's not and all those kind of things that's a whole different discussion but the general idea of people being awliya or close friends of allah uh that's that exists so if allah wills for you or wants you or loves for you loves you then he will acquaint you with a wali from his awliya and in order to do so he will Unveil for you, I guess we can say The humanness of that person Their bashariya That we were just talking about in the one before it And he'll make you to witness their khususiya So he'll allow He'll he'll take that veil that, that we were talking about in the one before Away And allow you to witness the truth about this person Sometimes I think about things that maybe I should share and then I start to question like maybe I shouldn't share that Maybe that story is not a good story to and then I'm trying to think about like what is the Consequence of that story, you know, like maybe it could be Self-aggrandizing in some sort of way, so let's just leave it at um as we said, people, and they, they say that, by the way, about the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and I think I've mentioned this before, that they'll say that people like Abu Jahl, Abu Lahab, they never saw Sayyidina Muhammad Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. All they saw was Muhammad ibn Abdullah. Muhammad ibn Abdullah. You know, that's all they, that's all they saw. So they, they all they saw was Muhammad the son of Abdullah. They didn't see Muhammad the messenger of Allah. And so all they saw was him as the physical reality of who he was, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Although it was grand, but they didn't see him in who he really was, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. And so sometimes, subhanallah, there's people that were around who are really special. And. All we can see from them is like their mistakes or their humanness. You know, maybe their shirt wasn't ironed. Maybe they, like, I, this is the one I was thinking about 
not sharing, but one time a sheikh came and we met him in the airport. And, you know, he had just gotten off like a long flight. So, uh, you know, generally like human beings, when they've come off a long flight, they don't always smell so fresh, right? And like maybe they're not as cleanly groomed and stuff like that. And uh, I remember it like catching me off guard for a second. And then I started thinking to myself, like, you're an idiot. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> like, are you thinking about <laughs> the sheikh's, like, not perfectly groomed or something? Like, what are you, what are you, like, what kind of idiot are you? Uh, but these are, you know, like, sometimes a law, w- w- we, sometimes these things actually do get in the way. Like, maybe the person will be speaking and they'll get, like, really passionate and they'll say something and you're like, hmm, I don't know about that. Not necessarily something that's, like, really wrong, but just something you're like, hmm, that throws me off, you know. But in reality, and then we miss, like, the 99% of what they said that was really amazing or whatever it might be. Anyways, you get the point. We're going to be here all day and never finish these hikam if I keep up with these weirdo tangents and stuff. Um, The point here that I think is more important is that the people of Allah are one of the greatest gateways to Allah. And that is something that a lot of Muslims in the West, um, especially in America, because America is a very Protestant country. You know, we're very Protestant. We're very anti-Catholic. And Catholicism has saints and it has hierarchy and all of these things. And then we start saying, we don't have any hierarchy we don't have any of this. We don't have any. There's no intermediaries between you and God. It's true. There's no intermediaries between you and God. But God sent prophets, didn't he? Like, there's a reason why God sent prophets. He could have just put revelation down. Like, here's the book. It appears on a mountain somewhere, right? But, like, there's a reason why prophets exist. And there's always people who will inherit the way of the prophets. And those people are really the doorway to understanding Allah and what it is that Allah wants from us. So what what this is really getting at here is like the uh, the guide he he does not make one anyone reach his friends except he whom he wishes to make reach him. Uh, and so like one of the du'as that my wife always tells people to make Allahumma dullani ala man yadulluni alik. Allahumma dullani ala man yadulluni alayk. Oh Allah, guide me to he or she who will guide me to you. Guide me to he or she who will guide me to you. Whoever that might be. And it might not be what we're expecting. It might be like some random uncle that nobody really thinks about, you know. That's like really amazing. And uh, has something like really incredible in their relationship with Allah. Um, I remember like even one time my you know my wife asked one of the teachers can you tell me like a woman who's a who's a waliya like a woman who has who's an amazing woman I can benefit from her and I could be around her and stuff like that and he gave her he gave her like a phone number of someone to call it was like a you know a community member it wasn't like some sheikha or some ustada or some great scholar or whatever it was. It was a community member, sincere community member. And she called her and like they had a conversation. She got off the phone. She was like, "Oh my god, like what a, what an experience!" 
just talking to this person, you know. So we don't know who those people may be, and we ask Allah to give us their company. Allahumma amin. 147. 157, sorry. Perhaps he lets you see the unseen metaphysical world, but veiled you from seeing the secrets of his servants. Mm. This one's pretty interesting. It's pretty interesting. So, saying like, maybe Allah gave you the gift of unveiling to you things from the unseen. I don't know what that might be. Kaljannati wa nari, he says it in the commentary, alhamdulillah, he saved me. Kaljannati wa nari wa arshi wa kursi wa ghayri dhalik. Like maybe he gives you a glimpse of paradise. Maybe he gives you a glimpse of hellfire. I've heard like, you know, one sheikh one time was talking and he told, uh, he mentioned a dream that he had had that really matched kind of like the descriptions that the Prophet ﷺ gave of Jannah. But he's, he's been in it in his dream and experienced it in a sense, right? So now the person has, they've seen that at some level, right? So maybe he'll give you that, but he won't unveil for you the secrets of his servants. Uh, and then the next one is connected to this one. Um, he says in the commentary, This. فإنك ربما اطلعت اطلعت على معصية فبادرت بمعاقبة صاحبها وعدم رحمته فتقع في الفتنة أي العجب على الناس بعملك فيكون ذلك سببا لجرل وبال أي الهلاك إليك كما قال المصنف in the next one so he says Allah will veil from you the secrets of his servants and that which is in their hearts from good and bad out of mercy towards you because maybe you'll be given an insight into something that's going on in the with the person, like one of their sins, for example, and immediately you'll want to punish them and you'll be judgmental towards them and you won't have mercy towards them. And in doing so, you yourself will fall into a great trial, which is ujb, which is to think that you're better than other people, to be amazed with yourself and so on and so forth. And then that will be a means by which great uh, hardship is brought towards you. Because that's like a really bad station to be in. Station where someone believes that they're better than other people and other people are so bad and look at me, I'm so amazing and so on and so forth. And what's really scary about that is like so much of our religious quote-unquote experience is basically people doing that, right? Like that's what, that's what the common complaint is. You know, I went and everyone was so judgmental towards me and this and that and like... People joke about it, this millennial judgmental thing. I don't want people to be judgmental and so on and so forth. But like, there's actually a lot of truth in it. Right? Like, th there's actually something that they understood that the so-called religious didn't understand. Which was that you're not supposed to do that. Like, that's arrogant. That's not merciful. That's not kind. That's not what you're supposed to be as someone who has prophetic teaching. And so they just get repelled by it. I don't want to have anything to do with that, right? And then they be, that becomes their understanding of what it means to be religious. You know? 
In the next one he says, he continues it like I said. من اطلع على أسرار العباد ولم يتخلق بالرحمة الإلهية كان اطلاعه فتنة عليه وسببا لجر الوبال إليه This is I have in my comments here Can you see it? You see what it says? It says mic drop <laughs> this, this is the mic drop Whoever sees the secrets of the servants and does not try to imitate divine mercy, his seeing such is a trial for him and a reason for misfortune to befall him. That's a mic drop. It's like you're not going to, Allah is going to give you this trust, right? Like it's a trust to be given insight into someone else's struggle. Okay, that's a trust. And Allah is going to give you that trust. And if he gives you that trust and you don't tatakhalak bir rahmatil ilahiya, I should say, and we don't natakhalak bir rahmatil ilahiya. If we don't try to embody that mercy that Allah has um, sent to creation, then that will be a huge trial for us. That will be a huge trial for us. This is pretty scary, but very important. I believe very very important, you know. Can you imagine if this was our this was our um, if this was our default, you know? Instead of like so and so made this mistake and let's chop their legs off, or you know this person did this wrong and just like so, we're very muaqib, very like punishing, you know. And that becomes the culture of everything that we do. But the culture of everything that we do, especially al-ibad bain al-ibad, the servants between the servants, it's supposed to be a, a, mercy, a culture of mercy, of rahmah. And, and such that, it's, again, you know, like we make fun of, sometimes people make fun of these things, but a safe space, like, yeah, it, it is supposed to be a safe space. Like a believer with a believer is supposed to be a safe space. And Muslim and Sanima and Muslimuna min lisanihi wa yadi. That the Muslim is the one who the Muslims are safe from his or her hand and tongue. Isn't that the hadith of the Prophet? It literally says that the Muslim is a safe space for another Muslim. It literally says that. Like that's almost direct translation. The person is safe from their hand and their tongue. And then we make fun of it and stuff, you know. Don't be whatever people say. People say weird things. Unfortunately, most of our time is spent not in actual study. You know, it's not in actual listening to hadith. Uh, so, and that's why all these things are important, you know. Like, part of why we teach is not, of course, we said before, part of why we teach is so that people can stand on their own two feet, they can learn, they can grow, you know. Like maybe in the beginning stages of one's studies, they learn, they learn, they listen, they listen, they listen, they try to... And then eventually they start to read on their own, they start to study things on their own, they start to ask questions, they start to engage, they start to debate, they start to really like build their own um, acumen, right? For, for, for engaging with this religion on their own two feet. Not out of like arrogance, but out of being part of this tradition, right? That's... that's um, I don't know why I was saying this, but 
that's part of what we're trying to do of course but uh but also in studying all the time studying is also an act of dhikr and studying is also an opportunity for us to realign like yeah i've read the hikam before but every single time we come together and we read them they're a reminder and we teach things that we've read before we've studied before and every time that we teach them it's like you're studying it for the first time you know there's there's so much there and so it's also a part of like a part of reminding us of of what really matters and what the truth is and, and if not then we just default to whatever the popular discourse is right whatever side of it it might be May Allah help us 159 he says the portion of the lower self in acts of disobedience is plain and known while its portion in acts of worship is hidden and secret and treating a hidden disease is difficult so what is this saying nafs is a really important concept Hadh is like your share, your portion, right? Portion or share, hadh, uh, where it says hadhun nafs fil ma'asiyati in the beginning. So that's like, it, this comes up a lot in the works of spirituality. Because really, what the person is trying to do in spirituality, what we're trying to do in Islamic spirituality, is to discipline and overcome at some level our nafs. So we have to ask the question of where does the nafs have a hadh? Where does this base self, this lower self, where does it have a portion? Right? So what he's saying here is that hadhun nafs al zahirun jali. That the portion that the nafs has in acts of disobedience is clear. Right? Like it's it's very clear, very apparent that you know, why did the person go out and party last night? They went out and they partied last night because they just felt like they needed to do that and they really wanted to enjoy X, Y, Z, whatever it might be, right? That's clear. The the hadh of nafs is there, is, is very clear. It says, but hadhuha fi ta'ati batinun khafi. Whereas the portion of the nafs in acts of obedience is less apparent, it's hidden and secret. It's hidden in secret, okay? But it's there, okay? Even in acts of worship, and this is this is really, really important, that oftentimes in acts of worship, it's still there. And you'll see this. You'll see people who do things that they're supposed to do, and then they brag to you about it. Like, they're really proud of themselves, you know? And you're kind of like... I don't know. I'm I'm not the one to open your chest and determine if you're being arrogant about this or not, but that just seems kind of strange. Like why are you telling me about all of the worship you've ever done in the last 5 years of your life? Is it because the nafs has a hadh in that? Is it the nafs has a portion in that or is it not? So what he's saying is that the nafs does have a portion in the acts of worship in the acts of obedience. And it's much more subtle. And treating a disease that is subtle is very difficult. It's very difficult. So, you know, uh, 
There's an interesting story here. وَلِذَا كَانَتْ أَهْلَ الْبَصَائِرِ تَهِمُونَ نُفُوسُهُمْ إِذَا مَالَتْ إِلَىٰ عِبَادَةٍ مِنَ الْعِبَادَاتِ And for this reason, the people of spiritual insight used to accuse themselves they used to accuse themselves if they began to lean towards one worship, one type of worship uh, rather than others. Okay. فَإِذَا رَأَوْ فِيهَا حَظًّا لَهَا تَرَكُوهَا كَمَا وَقَعَ لِبَعْضِهِمْ أَنَّهُ حَدَّثَتْهُ نَفْسُهُ بِنْ خُرُوجِ إِلَى الْغَزْوِ وَأَظْهَرَتْ لَهُ أَنَّ ذَلِكَ لِلَّهِ تَعَالَى فَقَالَ يَا رَبِّ نَبِّهْنِي لِمَقْصِدِهَا فَإِنِّي مُتَّهِمٌ لَهَا وَفَتَّشَ فَإِذَا هُوَ لِأَجْلِ أَنْ تَسْتَرِيحَ مِنْ تَعَبٍ مِنْ تَعَبِ مُجَاهَدَتِهِ لَهَا فَإِنَّهُ كُلَّ يَوْمٍ يَقْتُلُهَا مَرَّاتٍ عَدِيدًا بِمَنْعِهَا مِنْ شَهْوَاتِهَا فَأَرَادَتْ أَنْ تُقْتَلْ مَرَّةً وَاحِدًا فَتَسْتَرِيحَ فَتَرَكَنْ خُرُوجَ إِلَى الْغَزْوِ وَاشْتَغَلَ بِمَا هُوَ فِيهِ So this could get, you know, there's some questions that maybe could come up around this, but Take the general idea. Don't try to nitpick it too much. Sometimes when we nitpick it too much, we lose it. So it says that they used to. So it says that there's a case where a person was felt like inclined to go out and make jihad. So the way that things used to be in the pre-modern world, when there's no international, not no, but international agreements and stuff were not the same, and so on and so forth, was that. The, the the Khalifa is supposed to take jihad out every year. He's supposed to make jihad every year. And many of the books of fiqh will say that. <coughs> because again, the frontiers are very volatile. So it's like almost on, it's never ending war basically on the frontiers of empires. They're not states in the modern sense of it with very clear boundaries and stuff. So this individual, and that's not a jihad that you have to go to. That's a jihad that is part of the community. Like some people go, some people don't go, it's whatever. So this individual, this person of insight, started to feel inclined to go towards this battle. So, he and he felt like it was for the sake of God. Right? Like I'm doing this for the sake of God. I'm doing this for the sake of Allah. So he said to himself, rather than to just assume, yeah, actually I am doing this for the sake of Allah. It's like the very common regular one nowadays would be uh, people who believe that they're involved in various activities because like for the sake of Allah, but they're really doing it because they like the sister or the brother who's doing it, you know. So like I'm attracted to this person, so I'm involved in all of the things that that person is involved in, but I'm doing it for the sake of Allah. It's like, well... Maybe. <laughs> and maybe there's another intention behind it as well. Which sometimes can be okay. Don't get me wrong. Like there's there's a level at which that can be okay. But there's also a level at which we have to level with ourselves. Be honest with ourselves. So he felt this way. So he said, Ya Rabb, He said, My Lord, help me to understand what the intention of my of my nafses because I don't trust it. I don't trust it. Right? And he searched and he searched 
And then he realized that what it is actually is that his nafs wanted a break because every single day he's making jihad against his nafs and he's fighting it every single day to not do this and not do that and to not follow its desires and so on and so forth. So the nafs was like, let's go to battle and just get killed once and be done with it rather than being fought every single day. <laughs> and when he realized that that's what it was actually, then he, he didn't go to the battle and he stayed and he continued working on himself. Okay. The point of the story is to recognize that there can sometimes be ulterior motives that we're not really recognizing and yet they're still there. And so being vigilant about that and trying to remind ourselves about that and trying to be conscious about that is really important. Okay, 160. Oh my God, there's a bunch of chat comments. Oh, there's good questions in the comments and I missed them. Okay, let me go to them. How can the imam make a sustainable income? Is it possible then to be only an imam? Like, do you have to have another profession for income? Uh, well, it depends. I mean, it depends on where you live and the institutions that are involved and a whole lot of factors, you know? Like, in a lot of parts of the country, you can buy a really respectable, nice house for $200,000. So, that's obviously a very different reality than we have here, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, there's parts in the country where the ratio of average home value to average income is 2 to 1. Can you believe that? Like, if the average income is 100,000, the average home is 200,000. So, like... It's so easy to own a house, right? <laughs> and you have places... I think San Francisco is like 15 or 16 to 1. <laughs> like, 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 you know, if, if the average income is like... I don't know. In Irvine, I think the average family income is like 110 or 15,000 last time I checked, which was several years ago, which I'm not sure if it's even accurate anymore. But... Um, and like, you know... A small home is probably going to be six or seven hundred thousand. So how does that even? It's very difficult to pull off, right? Um, but in some places it's easier. So geography matters, and in some some communities in Massachusetts and stuff, they pay well. You know, they they do actually take. You know, there's it, it works out. Sometimes it doesn't, and also you know even if the job description has, like for example, when I started at ICOI. They gave me this huge job description and we said you know we we're in the conversation about it and it was like this fat thing and i read it all and i was like okay i was like as long as you understand that this is how much i'm working every single week and these things are going to get prioritized and for a long amount of time the things that are lower on the list are not going to get done and the things that are higher on the list will get done and we'll work towards the other things being filled out somehow over time but the amount that I work in the week is not going to change. So if they agree on that, it's fine. You can put a hundred things on the list if you want, but like none of them are going to happen. You know, then maybe the handful of them are going to happen. Um, but it's challenging because then what happens in the end is after a year when they want to review the person or whatever, 
by then the board has changed and now they're working with the same document and they're like so which of these things have you done and they're like well we had a conversation with the people who were before you it's just a mess that whole thing is a mess but it can be done um, you can survive yeah, you know like in some places especially you can survive and I think that in Southern California um, there's some consciousness around this that's better than some places but again it's also way more expensive to live here than it is in other places so it's kind of like hit or miss the other problem is that quite frankly like a lot of imam imams are also a mixed bag you know, some are like really qualified, some are not qualified at all. Some open their mouth when they shouldn't open their mouth. Some some of them um, just really, you know, really a mixed bag. So, it's a hard one. Um, but many, many, uh, and when, I'll say this, when you have a community situation where the imam has to take on other work in order to survive and support his family, it's bad for the community. That's my personal opinion, and I, I feel very strongly about it. I feel that it's very bad for the community. And the reason is because, like, it's really hard to quantify what an imam who's really doing their job does. Because they do so many different things. And ideally, ideally, they do so many different things and they anchor the community in so many ways that really requires a lot of time and commitment and it cannot happen in the same way if they're preoccupied with other things. And I've seen it, like, you know, and, and we've seen it, actually, if we're honest. Like, we've seen it in Southern California. We've seen, like, the difference between the work that Dr. Muzemmin was able to do, even though they did, you know, part of it was not because he was taken care of financially for a lot of the time, it was because he's just a Zahid. Allah bless him, you know. But, um, like, being able to stay in the community and work for like 30 years, 40 years, has a huge impact. In San Diego, the communities that my, my wife grew up in in San Diego were very like, you had imams that stayed in the community. And it makes a big difference over the course of a person's life, over life cycles. One year, two year, it doesn't really make a big difference, but over periods of time, it makes a big difference. When you have a lot of uh, overturn, is that the word for it? It's, it doesn't, doesn't have the same impact. It doesn't anchor the community in the same way. Anyways, I think spirituality in general is trendy. Same goes for yoga, meditation, etc. Very true. Very true. Absolutely. Um, and the problem with that again is that all of these things are not about the outward they're about the inward and so as long as it's trendy it oftentimes doesn't go inward like I've met people that sometimes even people that are close to me and I'm probably some I'm probably this way too so I'm not saying that I'm any better but they say everything right and the feeling that I'm getting from everything that they're saying right is not right. It's just kind of like, yeah, you got it all right, but you don't have it all right. I don't know how to explain it, but, you know, that's why these things for us are not like really, in our tradition, these are not really things that happen very fast, you know. They're things that... 
Like it's not someone, and you don't attain it by finishing a course, you know. And I think that's part of it again with the marketization of everything and so on. It's like you want to finish the course and you want to get certified, and once you finish the course and you get certified, now you can like do it. It's like no, actually, you can't. You're not it until you're it, <laughs> and so it doesn't matter if you have like the little note that says that you passed the course. Great, you passed the course. Doesn't mean that what happened, what's inside of you changed. And that's really tough. Sometimes we were, um, you know, sometimes it takes a lifetime and you don't get it. But that's okay, we work on it. Try to be humble about it, which comes to this other one. How come here we don't ask Allah to make us one of those believers and we only ask to be in their company when it comes to the people who will show us show us Allah? Um, we hope, it's kind of out of humility and it's out of... Um, you know the hope that if one is able to find those people that maybe some maybe we'll have something at some point but the nefs is really tricky that's really what i think that's the the nefs is really tricky like that seems like a good dua to make but it can it can slip into arrogance really fast so it could be though for some people for some people it's a, it's like sayyidna ibrahim alayhi salam waj'alna lilmuttaqina imama Make us imams for the for the for the righteous, you know. Like that was his dua for him and his offspring. It worked for him. Um, from what I understand, the wealthy Muslims subsidized the scholars through alqaf, at least in the past. They did, yeah. That's exactly what they did, and it's totally reasonable model, and it makes perfect sense, and it can it, it can protect everything from a lot of problems. So then your 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 intellectual community is able to be self-sufficient in some way and it's able to um, um, kind of like be self-critical and monitor itself in a way and of course others will be involved too and um, and it makes it so that they're not doing things for like the whims of the market right and it also you know also it seems that at least some wealthy Muslims in the past understood that what I think um, my uh, my wife was telling me she had a really good quote was uh, that the the lady in Congress who's like really good who says really I don't know if I should say that who who says really interesting good things um, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez or something she said she had some quote about like um, um, uh, basically in this country. Um, I might be messing it up, but take the meaning of it. In this country, basically, you can't become a billionaire without having some sort of oppression on your hands. Okay, so there was, this was a concept I think that people understood in the past as well, is that if I have a whole lot of money, it's probably that there's some oppression on my hands. And I want to do something to try to uh, purify my wealth from this and to purify myself from this and even if I'm not like they might not even be super religious people or people who really care about religion or whatever but they'll be like you know what I'm gonna start a school and I'm gonna endow this thing for perpetuity by my whatever it might be so and and if you think about it really like in the Muslim community this is not so crazy hard to do like if we were to say, I don't know, 
you know, I'm sure some people are able to get 10% returns on their investments. So let's just choose numbers that are easy, right? Let's assume that some people are able to get easy 10% returns on their investments, pretty standard. Then if they were to give a million dollars in charity to an endowment, and they're gonna get 10, 10% every year off that principle, then that's enough, it might not be enough, but it's just to make the numbers easy. It's a good amount to support people in the work of religious teaching and learning and community service and so on and so forth, right? Like there's other expenses involved, obviously you have to pay taxes, you have to do this, you have to do that, whatever. But just to make it easy, it's a million dollars. Like in theory, a million dollars, someone can put a million dollars down and other people can donate a thousand here, five thousand there, whatever they feel like, whenever they can to keep that endowment, the principle of the endowment growing over time to deal with inflation and so on and so forth. And that person will be able, the person who's hired from that position will be able to serve the community forever. You're going to tell me that we don't have that? <laughs> like, <laughs> we have people who make 80 million dollars a year. And I'm not exaggerating. Like, I know someone in the community who was making 70, 80 million dollars a year before he retired. Like, how hard is it really? How hard is it really to have 10 people who are serving the community on a full time basis without any concerns other than, you know, being held accountable and stuff, of course, but like without any serious financial concerns? And I'm not saying to like make them wealthy, feel. Not so they can drive around really nice cars and live in huge houses and stuff like that. We're just talking about so they can live comfortably and decently. We could totally do it. And but you know now, but what is it? Now we are too busy subsidizing huge weddings. That's basically what it is. You know, like I've I've been to weddings. That they I I mean, they easily are over fifty thousand dollars. Easily. And every time I just think to myself, like, like your wedding just costs the amount of money it takes to send a person to go study Islam full time for four years or five years. <laughs> that's crazy. Uh, but we have to think about what people are going to do when they come back, because that's also the big issue, you know. That when we left, the big call was. We need to send people overseas. People need to go overseas. We need local grown people to study Islam and come back and teach the community and make da'wah and so on and so forth. And that was like the big push. But like then what was like, what are they going to do when they come back? <laughs> there's no there's no job opportunity. There's no and there are masajid that are hiring, but people are scared to go into the masajid now. Anyways, it's a huge thing. Enough. That's more than my down payment on my little loft in LA. Yeah. Allah help us. Every, all will be well. In the end, everything in creation is in the hand, so to speak, of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah controls everything. Allah does as He wills. Sometimes things have to be corrected, and they have to be corrected in ways that we may not always like but alhamdulillah perhaps showing off in good works has entered upon you from where people do not see you so again like uh, maybe maybe that's it's coming in 
So sometimes um, showing off is there. And it's there even when people don't see you. You're still showing off. Isn't it amazing that people cannot see us and we can still be showing off? <laughs> like I could be praying in the middle of the night and be showing off. Because in the end, I'm doing it so that I can feel good in front of people. Even if they don't know. But I'm still doing it so I can feel good in front of them. And it's supposed to be between me and Allah. Allah help us. He says here that this riyat, this showing off, sometimes it's apparent. Some of the signs of it being apparent are that you want people to respect you. You want people to rush to take care of your needs. Uh, you're angry about those who uh, come up short in terms of your rights that you think you deserve. Um, and so on. So like, say one of the big signs uh, that someone, you know, like some some sheikhs, quote unquote, they're more interested in being served than they are in serving. And that's generally a major red flag, you know. The, it's, it's their, the, the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ is to serve, not to be served. He will be served, ﷺ, but his, his intention is to serve. قَالَ بَعْضُ الْعَارِفِينَ عَزُّ شَيْءٍ فِي الدُّنْيَا الْإِخْلَاصِ وَكَامَ اجْتَهِدُ فِي إِسْقَاطِ الْرِيَاءِ عَنْ قَلْبِي فَكَأَنَّهُ يَنْبُتُ فِيهِ عَلَى لَوْنًا آخِرِ So he said, some of the righteous people, they said, the most difficult thing in the world for, for me to attain was sincerity. And I keep struggling to um, free myself from this showing off. Keep struggling to free myself from this showing off. And it keeps showing up in different colors. Like I get rid of this one and then it shows up in a different way and I get rid of that one and it shows up in a different way and it keeps coming back. And that's the struggle that continues and continues and continues. Well, it seems that I didn't control myself today. Allah forgive me. And we only finished five of them. So I guess we'll just start from 161 next time. Inshallah. Inshallah. Uh, how do we balance the need for human validation with being called to only seek divine validation? Very good question. So it's really, I think there's a lot of things that kind of, I don't know if it's chicken and egg, chicken, the chicken and the egg, or it's like, I don't know, let me just sit and talk through it a little bit, is that sometimes, <coughs> like for example on the issue of, we're supposed to thank people, what's wrong? The kid keeps chasing me and gonna get me licked. Okay, so we're supposed to thank people if they do something good for us. The one who does not thank people is not thankful to Allah, the Prophet them said. And at the same time, we're not supposed to seek thanks from people when we do things for them. So there's two angles to it almost. So do we recognize that there is a need for human validation? Absolutely. And should that be our motivating intention? Absolutely not. 
And yet, at the same time, the paradox of it is, we will generally get some level of real and sincere human validation when we do things solely for the sake of Allah. In many cases, sometimes it will be a lonely path. Maybe you have to stand up for something that no one else is going to stand up for, whatever it might be. But generally speaking, there will be good people who will recognize good. And when you're doing things for the right reason and so on and so forth, or when we're doing things for the right reason and so on and so forth, then people will recognize that good and they'll appreciate it and there will be human validation in it because that's their wajib. Their wajib is to express that validation to you and your wajib is to not seek it. So, but inevitably it will be there because they'll know that they're supposed to do that, you know. Um, <coughs> and also, there's that hadith about how when Allah loves somebody, He calls Jibril, Sayyidina Jibril, salam, He tells Sayyidina Jibril, I love so and so, so love them. And Sayyidina Jibril calls the inhabitants of the heavens, the angels, and He tells them, Allah loves so and so, so I love so and so, so love this person. And then the angels go down to the people in the earth and they put the love of that person in the hearts of the people in the earth. Right, the people that are good, and the hadith of the Prophet wasallam that someone asked him, they said, "Ya Rasulullah, we do a deed, and we do it for the sake of Allah, not for the people." And then the people praise us for it. You know, what should we do about that? And he said, "Tinka, ajil bushr al mu'min." That's the early glad tidings for the believer. That they did it for Allah, and they weren't seeking the validation of the people, and the people validated them for it. Then that's they, that's the early glad tidings for them. That's like a sign for them that Allah accepted it and that it's good and so on. So uh, there's, I think, a, a, some sort of there's a dance there. There's a dance there that <coughs> that when we do what's right, we get what we need. And and sometimes there'll be cases where we have to do what's right despite the circumstances. And that's where. It, that training becomes very important. Allah give us tawfiq. <coughs> Allah give us tawfiq. My computer automatically spotlighted Abdullah and Hanan. I mean, it was a happy moment. <laughs> so, barakallah fikum. Khair, inshallah, it looks like Maghrib is upon us. Inshallah, may, may uh, all of your evenings be wonderful and until we meet again, may Allah accept us and may Allah accept from us and may Allah give us the tawfiq to worship Him in a way that is beloved and pleasing to Him. Ameen. Wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sallam wa sallam subhanakum wa bihamdik wa shalawa la ilaha ila an nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk wa al-asr inna l-insana lafi khusr illa alladhina amanu wa amilu salihat wa tawasubil haqqi wa tawasubil sabr. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah.